Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. So let's, let's do a uh, turn, if you have your Bible, or if you have the note, the Bible app uh, deal, we're, we're starting in chapter 19. So we only have a few chapters left, but this is where things obviously grind to a very, very slow halt because we've been in chapter uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and now 19. That's seven chapters. That's literally probably 12 hours. Okay, so seven chapters of John from 13 to now that are about seven-ish, maybe 12, well, 12 hours, not even 24 for sure. It started at the dinner uh, with, the, with, the, with Jesus washing the feet in chapter 13, and now here we are in chapter 19, Jesus is wrapping up his final uh, trials uh, after his arrest. So Jesus, if we remember, he's been arrested. Um, we, learned, we walked through that last, couple, last, week, last two weeks in chapter 18. He's been arrested um, he, in, in the garden. If you remember, the 600-some-odd the cohort of Roman soldiers come up, and, and Jesus says, I am he. And when Jesus says, I am he, which is a very clear statement of his deity, they all fall to the ground. Uh, something supernatural happens to them. And uh, Judas, who's there at the garden, he's nowhere to be found as the accuser, as the witness later on. And so the Romans are left with the prisoner, Jesus, but no witness to condemn Jesus on this charge um, of, of uh, sedition, of rising up to be an, uh, another Caesar, another king. And so without the witness, they don't have a, they don't have a, a case. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I would imagine that if you want to develop a case against somebody, you, you probably need a, a witness. And they don't have a witness, and so they don't know what to do, so they take him over to Annas. And Annas was not the official high priest. The Romans had, had kicked him out of that, that role, given it to Caiaphas, but he was the spiritual leader. And, and the Old Testament says that if you're the high priest, you're the high priest for life. And so the Romans had kind of broken the Mosaic law by replacing Annas with Caiaphas, but the, the soldiers take him to Annas because they thought surely the spiritual leader the true spiritual leader is going to know what to do. Well, he kind of asked Jesus some questions and sent him on to Caiaphas. We, we talked about this last couple of weeks, just trying to get us all on the same page. Caiaphas, his trial is not in the book of John. John doesn't record it. Maybe John wasn't there. Maybe John didn't see an importance to it. John doesn't record. He just said they went to Caiaphas and from Caiaphas, they went to uh, Pilate. But I encourage you to read John, uh, Matthew 26, Matthew 27, the first part 27, because that's the trial at Caiaphas's house. And this trial at Caiaphas's house is uh, the, the one, the trial that we all think about. It, I think it was depicted in the Passion uh, of Christ. It's the one that we all think about where, you know, the, the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they're all dressed up in their robes and Jesus is there, they're questioning him. And, you know, when the, the high priest tears his, his robe because Jesus claims to be the son of God and he says, blasphemy, why do we need witnesses? That's the time when they're looking, everyone, every single member of the Sanhedrin are looking for false witnesses, meaning no one is looking for truth. They're all looking for false witnesses. Uh, and there's so many violations of the Sanhedrin law, those traditions that they've created and they violate their own rules, their own morality code, with, just so that they can crucify and silence this Jesus of Nazareth. Why? We have to keep this in mind. Why? Because he was in competition, they saw, with their corner market on religious leadership and rule. It's my understanding that the Pharisees were not paid teachers, 
scribes. They weren't paid by the, the, um, by the temple, but what ha- they had their own business enterprises. Let's say me and, and Brandon were business owners and I was, you know, the chief priest of Israel and he's just, you know, Joe Schmo. You know, we both are business owners selling the same product. Who are you probably going to want to buy from? probably the high priest. So I can get a little extra blessing upon you or something along those lines. Well, what if I'm no longer high priest? Well, the whole high priestly order is put away because of this competition, this carpenter son. Well, now I don't have, you know, the, the, uh, the draw, uh, politically to get people to buy from my business. They might go to Brandon now, you see. So there is uh, indirect, um, concern of their livelihood at stake. And so they rise up and they make this conspiracy with Judas to arrest Jesus. I believe that they had no desire to arrest Jesus over the Passover weekend because Jesus had predicted that he was going to be arrested and killed over the Passover weekend. So they did not want Jesus arrested and killed over Passover weekend because he would have been seen to be a prophet. And so they had a plan. They were conspiring, but they didn't want it to happen when Jesus said it was going to happen because that would just give further credence to Jesus being, in fact, the Messiah. And so when Jesus uh, exposes their conspiracy at dinner in chapter, what was it, 13, 14, when he says to Judas, what you're going to go do, go do quickly, Judas goes to the chief priest and said, man, Jesus knows what we're up, what we're doing. So we have to act quickly. We have to move forward or else I'm going to lose opportunity to get close to him, to betray him. And so Jesus is in control the whole time I see. Well, Caiaphas at his trial, uh, at Caiaphas's house in the middle of the night, he tears his robe, which is against the, the Mosaic law. The priests are never to tear their robes. And he cries blasphemy that Jesus has blasphemed the name of the living God. Well, there's a problem with that. The problem with this charge of blasphemy is that the Pharisaical uh, Judaism, which arose out of the um, exile, they were so concerned about being uh, guilty of blaspheming God what they did was they, they just figured out a way to no longer know how to pronounce the name of God. So if you can't pronounce the true name of God, then how can you blaspheme God? Because you can't say his name correctly. I know it sounds kind of weird to us, but that was their solution to making sure that they kept the Mosaic law in this form of blasphemy. So even to this day, we don't truly know how to pronounce the Hebrew name from God for God. What are some of the pronunciations that we know? Jehovah. We've heard that, right? Jehovah. What's another pronunciation that we know? Yahweh. Yahweh. But it's based off of the same Hebrew word. Yapha, I've heard. I used to use, oh, it's truly Yapha. I, I knew what it was when I was in Hebrew uh, uh, class. Oh, it's got to be Yapha. But the reality is they only had consonants. They didn't, ha- they didn't use vowels. Vowels were translated orally. In the written language, there were no vowels in Hebrew. And so their idea was, let's don't continue to say the name. And so generations from now, nobody will know to say the name, how to say the name. And so there will never be the charge of being guilty of blasphemy. But what is it that the high priest is charging Jesus with? Blasphemy. See, it just doesn't add up. There's so many things that don't add up, but they're willing, again, to bend the rules, to break their own rules, to do things that they say is impossible in order to just simply condemn Jesus and convict Jesus so that they cannot have their market uh, uh, of religious power lost. So the problem, they're at Caiaphas's with the Sanhedrin, they have no authority to kill Jesus. Rome had taken that authority. And so they've got to get Jesus back under the rule of the Romans. They, they've got to get Jesus back as a prisoner of Rome, uh, 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 arrested by Rome, apprehended by Rome, so that the Romans could actually kill him because they couldn't. They weren't allowed to. And so when Jesus pronounces himself as the son of God, see, this isn't in John. This is in um, Matthew 27. That's why we're kind of steering away from John just for a second. In Matthew 27, when Jesus uh, uh, agrees, he claims that he is the son of God. Caiaphas makes the connection. 
to be God. That's blasphemy. And so now we have a charge that will stick with the Romans. So they take him to Pilate. And that's where we picked, that's where we were at, at the end of last week. Pilate, they go to Pilate with this charge saying, he claims to be the son of God. If he claims to be the son of God, he's claiming to be king. And there is no other king but Caesar. Now we're back to the sedition charge. So we pick up with Pilate in the end of chapter, beginning of chapter um, of 19. He's been at Pilate for a little bit. And also John doesn't record what Luke and, and Ma- uh, Matthew record, I think it's Matthew, of where Pilate sends him to Herod and then Herod sends him back. You know that part? That's not in the book of John either. So we'll just stick with what John has here uh, written for us. So Pilate, having uh, said at the end of chapter 18, hey, I've got a plan to get Jesus free because I find no fault with him. He's not, he's not trying to, to lead a ri- uprising against Caesar. He's just a little crazy. He says he's, his kingdom is not of this world. He's like talking about other realms. Like this guy isn't like, you know, trying to you know, create like sedition. He's just a little senile. He, he, he's a little loose in the head. He, he, he's, you know, a sci-fi freak. Like this is not legit. Like we're not going to kill him because he, he's talking about, you know, some senile stuff here. And so he says, I have a plan at Passover. I always release a prisoner. How about you take Jesus as the released prisoner? And we'll just call all this, you know, sweep all this under the rug. They said, no, we want who? Barabbas. You take Jesus, you kill Jesus. So Pilate then took Jesus after they cried for Barabbas, the end of chapter 18, and scourged him. Now, I'm certain we've all seen the passion of the Christ, um, and it is a very graphic and, and horrific uh, depiction of uh, and, and likely very, very accurate of what Jesus, in fact, went through. But I think the whole point of why Jesus was scourged by Pilate was l- it's better to at least beat him within an inch of his life and he keep his life and the people be satisfied. OK, he's had enough and let him go free than to continue on. But this is actually a violation of Sanhedrin law, the Pharisaical law that they had created, because they said if someone is going to face death, then they shouldn't face any other sort of harsh penalty before death, because death is enough. And so they were not allowed under their own rules to, to beat somebody and then kill that somebody. They could beat them as a punishment and then free them, or they could not beat them and kill them. But you can't do both. And now here they are. Who... They are throwing their own rules that they take such pride in. They're throwing it to the wind because they just want what? Power. They want control. Sounds like a bunch of Republicans and Democrats, you know, to me. But anyways, then he took Jesus and scourged him. So Isaiah, uh, now I'll bring that up later. I'll bring that up later. Um, So I think Pilate did this to spare his life. He beat him sufficiently. If he beat him sufficiently, then the angry mob would see that Jesus is anguished. They would see Jesus's pain. And I think Pilate's like any reasonable person would be like, okay, look, he's had enough. Mercy, compassion. Well, during this beating, the Roman soldiers who certainly could care less about Jesus being the son of God, um, they twisted together the crown of thorns, which we're very familiar with, and put it on his heads and put a purple robe on him. What are they doing here? They're mocking Jesus who claimed to be a king. What do kings wear? They wear crowns. What do they wear? Robes of royalty, purple robes of royalty. I think it's in one of the other uh, gospels that they later ripped the robe off after the, the blood had sort of dried on it. So as the, the, the wounds were starting to dry, they just ripped them fresh again. And so um, while they're doing this, these Roman soldiers. So they're mocking him saying, you're, a, you're yeah, right. You're a king. They're mocking him in, in his claim of being a king. But now look at this. And they began to come up to him and, and say to him, hail king of the Jews. And then, uh, and to give him slaps in the face. It, John doesn't record this. This is where you have to like, look at all the different example, uh, uh, accounts. But in one of the other accounts, this is where the Roman soldiers would come up and hit him, blindfold him, hit him. And then say what? Yeah, prophesy to us, Jesus, who hit you. So they were just mocking his claim of being what? 
king. And now what are they mocking? His claim of being what? God, deity, the God man. Because it's only God who could predict or prophesy, if you're blind, who in fact hit, hit them. And so these Roman soldiers are mocking both his claims of being a king, but also his claim of being God himself. And Pilate, after this scourging, and, and, and scourging, they would literally beat a man within inches, truly inches of their life. Uh, again, I, I don't want to go into the gra- grave detail of it all. We've all seen the passion of the Christ. But there is nothing humane about this process. Absolutely nothing humane. And if you haven't seen the Passion of Christ, I encourage you to do so. uh, Because it is very eye-opening of what our Lord went through for us on our behalf. Um, At least what Jim Caviezel went through for a movie. But it was, it's an amazing depiction. So Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no fault in him. So this is actually the second, I lost count in my notes here. I think I get it wrong in my notes. But this is, I think, the second time, at least the second. He did it in chapter 18 when he said, hey, I'll give him back to you. You know, this is what I do. I'll give it back to you. If I no fault, you can have him. And they cried for Barabbas. So that was number one. Here's number two where Pilate says, guys, there's nothing wrong with this guy. I've beaten him within inches of his life. I find no fault with him. So Pilate is beating an innocent man. That can't be a good mark on his uh, tenure of governor of the area. And so he gives, he presents, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate is consistent time and time again that he has no desire to convict an innocent man. In fact, the Jewish law, which remember in chapter 18, (laughs) Pilate says, am I a Jew? Or maybe that's actually we're about to read here in a second. At some point, Pilate says, am I a Jew? I don't know your law. Go off. I think it was last week. Go off and and do it to him what you want to do to him. And they said, we we can't crucify. So that's why we're here. But but, But Pilate isn't a Jew. But yet Pilate is actually more faithful to the Mosaic law here than the Jews were because the Mosaic law has no interest in punishing an innocent man. In fact, the Jewish law in its entirety would rather see a guilty man go free than for an innocent man to be punished. There were rules about how many witnesses you had to have to a crime. There were rules, standards about um, what all, a very high burden of proof is what I'm getting at in the Mosaic law. God would rather see an innocent, uh, guilty man, uh, innocent man, uh, a guilty man go free than an innocent man condemned. And I say that's what Paul is doing. Uh, Peter, uh, Pilate, oh, sorry, too much caffeine. So, behold, I bring him out to you so that you may know that I find no fault in him. Jesus then came out. Now, this is their first view of him after being what? Scourged, beaten, flogged, some of your translations will say. First time seeing him, because this was all done back in the praetorium, back behind the governmental uh, offices. And now he brings them back out because the Jews won't go into the praetorium. Why? Because it's the day of preparation. They don't want to lose their ability to eat the Passover meal that night. It's actually the the meal of the uh, first fruits. Uh, No, the unleavened bread that night. They don't want to lose the rights to eat them because if they go into a Gentile uh, house, they'll be unclean until sundown. And they don't want that. So they're all waiting outside. Jesus is taken in. He's beaten and he's brought out. This is their first time seeing him wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate says to him, behold, the man. Idu ha um, anthropos. Behold the man. Why would he say this? Behold the man. I've got three ideas of why he would say this. First of which, and I don't, again, want to be overly gruesome, that's not my desire, is to ensure that they realize that this is, in fact, a human being standing before them. Isaiah 52, verse 14, says, in the, in the prophecy about the suffering Messiah, says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And so the very image, the face of, uh, of Jesus, his body was destroyed through this flogging so much that he lost even the resemblance of being a man. 
So I think the reason why Pilate says this, behold the man, is because it was confusing as to what was standing before them. Because he had been being beaten so gruesomely. Number two, I think he might have said this, behold the man. Number one, to, to make sure the people knew this actually is a human being standing right here. Number two, to garner sympathy for Jesus. In other words, guys, look at the man. I mean, look at him. Behold, it do. Look at the man. Look at him. Guys, hasn't he had enough? I mean, behold what I've done to him. That sort of an idea. To garner some sympathy for him. You see, uh, oh, sorry. So, so that's the number two reason. So number one, to make sure that they knew it was a man. Number two, to garner sympathy. Like, look, it's, it's the man. But here's my, my favorite reason why I think... Uh, can I have favorite reasons of what I think? This is definitely it, of why I think he says, behold the man. This is so cool to me. I think it's to give unequivocal, unequivocal evidence and proof that Jesus, God himself, was in fact a man. See, this is right before the crucifixion. There was a, later on in the first century, there was a very big movement called Gnosticism that believed that Jesus was not fully actual physical man. He was sort of a, 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 a spirit dwelling, but he wasn't actual human flesh and bone. And so for Pilate, a disinterested party, for him to call him ha anthropos, you hear anthropology in the word anthropos, that is man. Behold, here is a man. I believe it was to give unequivocal evidence and proof that Jesus fact it was in fact a man. Now, why is that so important? Well, it wasn't God who lost in the garden, was it? Did God lose in the garden? Not at all. It was man who lost in the garden. It wasn't God who lost life in the garden. It was man. It was Adam and Eve who lost life in the garden. It wasn't God who died in the garden. It wasn't God who got tricked by Satan in the garden. God didn't lose in the garden. It was man. God wasn't one who was cursed in the garden. God wasn't the one who received, who, 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 who where sin entered into God and therefore death. That wasn't God who lost. It was who? It was, it was man. This is really, really important for us to understand that standing before them was the man, the man, Christ Jesus, because it was man who lost in the garden. It was man who sinned and received death. In that very moment, the life, the presence of God himself withdrew from man in the garden. God didn't need victory over Satan. God didn't need that. He, he never lost to Satan. God didn't need to defeat death. God had never lost to death. God didn't need to defeat Satan. God hadn't lost to Satan. It was man who had lost. It was man. So since it was mankind, man who lost to sin, man who lost to death, and man who lost to Satan, who must defeat sin, death, and Satan? Man. Man was enslaved, and man must get out of that slavery. It wasn't God who lost. So here's the great dilemma. This is what we all realize. How can man defeat sin, death, and Satan himself? I mean, every single one of us. Genesis 5 tells us that all of Adam's, man's descendants were born in the image of man. No longer the image of God. Adam was created in the image of God, absolutely. But, but Adam's children were all created in the image of Adam. And what was that image? Spiritually alive, uh, physically alive, but spiritually what? Dead. That's the image of Adam. And all his sons, all his daughters, physically alive, but spiritually dead. Conceived, uh, um, um, David writes in Psalms, conceived in sin am I. So even in our con conception, in our physical birth, the power of sin is already at, in us and it reigns in us. And Paul says when he has a little 
Jewish boy, Saul of Tarsus, was then at age 12 or whatever bar mitzvah was for him, placed under the law, sin that was already in him became stronger and more alive and more powerful than he ever realized it was as he was placed under the law. So at conception and birth, we're born in sin. We're born dead to God. We're born a slave to the devil. In fact, the scripture, uh, Jesus says that your true father is the devil talking to the Pharisees. So how can man who is born in sin, born dead to God, born enslaved to our daddy, Satan, ever defeat Satan, death and sin? We lost, if you think about it, before it ever began. How can we, man, do this? And this, this is the glorious good news. This is the mystery of this thing we call the incarnation. The, the pinnacle of the good news is God who didn't need to defeat Satan. He didn't need to defeat sin. He didn't need to defeat death. God himself chose to become a man so that man would once and, as Hebrew says, for all defeat sin, defeat death, defeat Satan in one single act of his death of his burial and of his resurrection. So, yes, Pilate is letting us know that this is in fact a man. He is letting us maybe have some compassion. Guys, look at the man. But I think there's a bigger thing going on here where he is unequivocally giving evidence that this is Jesus, a man. And we know, particularly from the writings of Paul and the apostles to come, that because of Jesus, God becoming the God man, a man hung on a tree, a man was buried and a man rose from the dead for all man, ending the curse, ending the, the grip of sin and death. And that if any man simply believes we are, as we saying, resurrected from the spiritual death that we got from Adam to life. So to me, that's why it's the most important reason why Pilate says, behold the man. So that we, so he gives testimony that Jesus is not just some spirit being like some believed after the fact, but that he was in fact a man, flesh and bone, just like you, just like me, dying for the sins of the world. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, what should there, according to their rules, be? Well, dang it, Pilate, you've beat him. Now we can't crucify him because we have rules about this. That's what it should have been. But is that what their response was? It's not. They cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Violating their own rules, their own judicial penal code in order to silence this man, Jesus. Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. I think Pilate feels already I've done too much. I beat him within inches of his life already. I'm not going to continue with this any further. Well, what's the problem with the Jews taking him into their possession to crucify him? They have no right to. And I think Pilate knows that. And so he's kind of like saying, if you want to kill him, you kill him. You, you, and then, then face the penalty that you'll face with uh, the... Uh, authorities, and he being the number one authority. So again, I, I see Pilate declaring an unwillingness to crucify Jesus based on the evidence, but there's a bit of irony here. There's irony all in this, but Pilate, is he a Jew or a Gentile? Gentile. Pilate as a Gentile is seeking the exoneration of Jesus, a Jew who's being accused by who? Jews. There's, there's an irony in this because why, why would the Gentile be the one defending the Jew against the, the Jews? To give you a sort of a modern day sort of taste of just how ironic this would be, and not to get political, just making a statement here, it, it, to give us a hint of how ironic this is, it would be like right now, it would be like the Republicans seeking to impeach President Trump and the Democrats seeking to defend him and keep him from being impeached. Like that's the level of irony that, that we have here. It, where it, it's the, that's, that's, that's backwards. It should be 
Rome trying to kill Jesus and the Jews. He is a Jew. Or flip it, it'd be like Democrats trying to impeach Obama or prosecute Clinton, Hillary. And the Republicans saying, no, 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 we can't do that. We can't do it. It's totally flipped backwards. This is totally ironic. We could not imagine that in our culture. And I want us to think that way when we see this. What is so, it's so odd, so strange. The Romans are our enemy. We need to stick together. We need to fuse together. But they're, they, they want Jesus dead. I just want us to see how vitriolic they are in this moment. So Jesus came into his own, John wrote at the beginning of the book, and his own received him not. So, this is what, the third time, I think, that Pilate says, I, I, guys, there's nothing here. There's no grounds for this. What did Pilate not have? He didn't have a witness. Remember? There's no witness. And so, the Jews answered, we have a law. And by that law, now, now all of a sudden they're worried about their law, right? That they violated time and time again that he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now, I confess always that I'm not a Hebrew scholar, a Hebrew uh, Mosaic law scholar for sure, but I searched and I looked, I can't say exhaustively, but I looked for a long time and I could not find any Levitical law, any Mosaic law that stated that it was forbidden from, for someone to claim that they are the son of God. I, I couldn't find it. Now, maybe you can. Uh, maybe your Google search is better than mine. And you could find the law that states that. I couldn't find it. In fact, earlier in the book of John, there was a debate between Jesus and the Jews about who their daddy was. And do you remember who the Pharisees were, were claiming is their daddy? First, it was Abraham. And then ultimately, they were making the stand that our father is God. They were claiming that they were sons of God. But now that's the chief complaint that they have against Jesus. He's claiming to be the son of God. So I just don't find, I just don't know what's happening here, to be honest with you, because I can't find this as a law that Jesus is, is violating. Maybe this is their, their traditions beyond the Mosaic law. But again, why are they all of a sudden concerned about that? They've been violating that since last night. So at Caiaphas' house, the charge, remember he tore his robe and what did he cry out? Blasphemy. The charge was blasphemy. And I've already explained to you that under Pharisaical Judaism, they made sure that they couldn't be guilty of blasphemy by not being able to pronounce the name of God. And if you can't pronounce the name of God, then you can't be charged with blasphemy. And so it was their way of making sure that they were faithful to the Mosaic law. Um, so how can be Jesus be guilty of blasphemy when blasphemy, according to the Pharisees and to the religious, the Jews here, they can't even pronounce the name of God. And so I can't find anywhere in the law that it says that you can't claim to be the son of God. And Pharisees made blasphemy impossible, according to their own understanding, yet the chief priests are saying that Jesus is guilty of these things that I just don't see or know of how that he could be guilty of it. That just explains to me further that this is not a legal case. This is not a legal um, uh, argument. This is full of rage, full of fear. We just want him dead and silenced. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement that he claimed to be the son of God. He heard this statement. He was even more afraid. Now, why was he afraid? What's this fear? And it says even more afraid. So he was already afraid. So there's even a greater fear. What is this fear? I think it doesn't say, but I think it's because Pilate feared the mob. See, he was, he had his job. His job was there to keep the peace. His job was there to keep everybody happy. Hence, hey, every Passover, I'll even give you one of your convicts back. Like he's just trying to keep the peace. The more peace he keeps, the longer he keeps what? His job, but also his head connected to his shoulders. I mean, this is Caesar we're talking about. Caesar had spent a lot of money, a lot of capital to conquer Israel 
every area that they conquer. They spent a lot, spent a lot of capital in soldiers themselves, a lot of lives of, of Roman soldiers, spent a lot of money, a lot of, of, of uh, resources in order to co- capture and conquer these areas. Caesar is, when it comes down to it, like a businessman, he doesn't want to spend the same, uh, more money to get this something he already has. I mean, he doesn't want every six weeks another insurrection to rise up and he has to spend more capital, lose more soldiers, spend more resources to retain a land that he's already conquered. So Caesar doesn't want, so he's placed these governors in all these different areas. Even Herod is called King Herod. He's appointed even little lowercase king, K king, if you think of it that way, in all these provinces. And their job was to keep the people at bay so that Caesar didn't have to pay even more money out of his treasury, which is all his, he's the emperor, to keep the peace in the land. And so I think that's what Pilate is starting to realize. Wait a second, there's no satisfying this angry mob. And so the, uh, he, he's beaten Jesus unrecognizably, according to uh, Isaiah's prophecy. And they're now about to incite a riot if he doesn't kill him. So he's fearful of what is going to happen if he doesn't follow through, if he doesn't give the mob what the mob wants. Now, what's the problem with giving the mob what the mob wants? Who's really in charge? The mob. So every single time the mob gets together, you, Pilate, are just simply the puppet, you know, just to whatever the mob wants. And so it's like a a spoiled kid. You can't just give them everything they want or else they are now in charge. They're now the leader. And so if a riot ensues, who is Caesar going to blame? He blames the governor of the area for not keeping the peace. Again, as I said, Caesar doesn't want these riots keeping popping up. He's already spent a lot of money and personnel to occupy the land. He doesn't want to spend even more on it. So the governor's job was to keep the peace and not have these riots. So he was afraid of the mob and the rule, the control that he had over them. Verse 9, and he entered into the praetorium again. So he's gone back inside. The Jews are outside. They don't want to go in for fear of violating the law, which they violated a dozen times already. He goes back in to say to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gives him no answer. I think this is when he sends them, if I'm not mistaken, in the other books up to Herod, and then Herod sends them back. I could be wrong in this uh, timeline, but that's not included in John, so it's not a big deal for us today. So Pilate says to him, do you not speak to me? You don't answer me? Look at this. Do you not know, okay, Pilate, a Roman governor, is asking the God-man, do you not know what I know? (laughs) I think there's irony in there. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Now this is where Jesus is going to speak because he's not going to let this um, uh, assumption, terrible assumption, go on. And so Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And so Jesus in the midst, I mean, look at, look at, look at him. Like close your eyes for a second and look at him with this ro- crown of thorns, this purple robe, blood completely body mangled, unrecognizable as a man. And Jesus says to Pilate, the one who has authorized this beating, you have no authority over me. Again, I can see Pilate saying, dude, you're crazy. You are loony. But Jesus knew exactly what was going on. We'll get to the verse in a little bit that we've already looked at in John 10. But Jesus, he's in complete control the whole time. He says, no one takes my life from me. There have been numerous times when Jesus was caught. He was trapped in the, in, a, in the temple. People wanted to pick up stones and throw at him. But numerous times, the writers of the gospel say that Jesus slipped through for his time had not yet come. They were ready to kill him a lot earlier than this. But his time had not yet come. For the reason he... Uh, so unless so you have no authority over me unless it's been given to you from above so who has the ultimate authority it's god himself for this reason he who delivered me to you is the greater sin the one who brought me here it's not you 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 have no authority it's really the ones 
And who are those? The Jews who brought me to you. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts. And in the Greek, made efforts. It's like continually kept figuring out ways to release him. Like I envision him like thinking through all the, the Roman loopholes. You know, what are the loopholes that we can get through to release this guy? You know, what else can we do to free him? Again, I see Pilate over and over not wanting to kill Jesus. The irony of that. The irony is thick, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. What's this charge? Back to sedition. We're back to the original charge that they had Judas as the witness for. And, here's, and, and they're saying, he's claimed to be a king. You've heard him claim back in chapter 18. He said he, has a king, he is a king, but his kingdom's not of this world. Uh, he's claimed to be a king. And if you let this guy free, then, Caesar, then, then Pilate, you are no friend of Caesar. And if you're no friend of Caesar, we'll make sure Caesar knows who you're more uh, loyal to. This crazy Jew from uh, Nazareth versus Caesar himself. So Pilate's afraid. He's scared. And here we see the reality. We see this reality, the truth of who's truly in charge in the midst of this fiasco. And I want to say fiasco, like this is a fiasco. Just a couple quick thoughts on just how much of a fiasco this event is. As we've walked through this, does it seem that the Jews have this all organized, proper, and and, 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 and in place, like a well-oiled plan that they have put together? Absolutely not. Um, They don't have any of their ducks in a row. They're having night trials. They're having trials in people's residences. They're shuffling Jesus in the middle of the night between people's houses. Why are they not um, organized? Why are they not? Why are they scrambling from house to house? Why are they not? Uh, why are they in Roman uh, Matthew twenty-six? Why are they on the spot looking for false accusations? I mean, wouldn't you think if this was as big as it was? to them that they would have already lined up all their witnesses and had it all organized? I would think so. Well, like I said earlier and said last week, I don't think they had a plan to arrest Jesus this weekend. It was all a future plan, a future arrest, because if he was arrested this weekend and killed this weekend, that's what he prophesied would happen and he would be seen as a prophet. But Jesus exposed the conspiracy by exposing Judas. And Judas goes to the chief priest and he says, Jesus knows our plan. And so I have no choice, but we've got to do this tonight or else I'm compromised. I'm not going to be able to get close to Jesus. And Aaron uh, Budgen, who I love listening to when he's talking about this, he says the reason there's a reason they look the reason that they look so look in chaos and so unorganized is because there is such chaos and unorganization going on because this was not the plan to happen this night. But it's a fiasco. But in the midst of this crazy fiasco where there's nighttime trials, there's at, at two different high priests house and there's early morning trials at at Pilate's and then to Herod's and then back to Pilate's and we're searching for uh, false accusations. We're searching for testimonies because Judas, he was our witness, but he's going to hang himself. It's like in the midst of this fiasco, what is so cool to me is where Jesus, again, he reiterates, you have no authority other than the authority that's given to you from above. Who truly is in control? Who truly is in charge of what's going on. And the fiasco continues here with them now claiming that Pilate is, they're they're charging Pilate with sedition in essence. They're charging Pilate with even blasphemy because if if you are a friend of this Jesus, then you're not a friend of Caesar. That's blasphemous against Caesar. Not blasphemy of God, but blasphemy of Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And so Jesus claimed to be a king. 
then Jesus is in competition with Caesar. For Caesar did not appoint Jesus as the king, as a king. He appointed others as these regent kings, but not Jesus. And so Pilate realizes the true conundrum that he's in because he, he wishes, as, as much as he wishes that Jesus would be free, he doesn't find any fault with him, he fears the wrath of Caesar more than the truth of Jesus' innocence. And here's some more of this irony. Jesus, Caesar had not appointed Jesus as king. Who did appoint Jesus as king? God himself. These Jews who claim to be servants of the Most High God are more concerned about who Caesar appoints and Caesar's kingship than they are about who God appoints as king. Again, the irony. So therefore, a couple more verses. When Pilate heard these words, he is in fear. He is realizing that this mob is going to oust him if he doesn't do what they want. He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It's like this mound uh, outside of the praetorium where they would make judgments. It's kind of like the courtroom in essence. Now this was the day of preparation for the Passover and it was the sixth hour and they would count their hours starting at sunrise. So if, if, and I don't know when sunrise was this day, but if it was 6 a.m., this is the sixth hour since sunrise. So we're looking at about what? Noon-ish. Not all translations will translate it that way. Some people will say it's 6 a.m. That's, I just don't think that's, I know that's not how they would keep, they kept time. Um, and he, in this sixth hour, noon-ish, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now he just said, Behold the man. Now he's saying, Behold your king. Why would he do this? I don't know. I don't know the heart of, of Pilate, but I, th- I can't help, based on the context, that it's a last-ditched effort. It's one more effort for Pilate to say, Guys, look, here's your king. He's beaten within inches of his life. He's bloodied. I don't think you're going to have any more problem with him. Let's let him go. That's what I think. Or he might just be stirring the pot further, but I don't think so because he's already pretty scared of them, the mob. So they cried out, they, the Jews, they cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Again, reading between the lines, what is he saying? I think it's more empathy, an effort to release him. Shall I crucify the one who is your king? And the chief priests, now now, let this sink in. Again, I think the right word is irony. It's sad, but I think it's irony. The chief priests who are responsible for for ministering the Mosaic law to the people, the law given by God himself, who is their king, God himself, the chief priest, not some scrub scribe, but the chief priests themselves say what? We have no king but Caesar. Like, let that sink in. No king but Caesar. And I think nothing could be more true in this moment. God is not their king. God's Messiah is not their king. God himself is not their king. They had rejected their king. They rejected the one who came to be their Messiah. Just like they rejected God way back in uh, 1 Samuel. In the book of Judges and right in 1 Samuel. When they rejected God as their king. And God appointed Saul as a king. So Pilate is caught in a no-win situation. He can't release Jesus because the mob is going to charge him with sedition to whoever is over top of Pilate, maybe Herod. He can't, he can't uh, but if he condemns Jesus, he's, he feels as though he's condemning an innocent man. So what does he do in a no-win situation? He just simply hands him over to them to be crucified. So the chief priests, they get what they wanted. 
They got Jesus back underneath Roman arrest and they manipulated the Roman governor to kill Jesus. But I think it was actually God who really got what he wanted. See, before the foundation of the world was established, God had a plan to redeem man. God's eternal plan of becoming a man to end the curse of sin and death was working flawlessly. And here's, again, the last irony that I'll point out and we'll wrap up. The last irony is that greed amongst the chief priests, hatred, anger, bitterness, jealousy, name these sins, these sins of greed, jealousy, anger, bitterness, etc. It is what motivated the Pharisees. It it was exhibited in their lives as they arrested Jesus and they sought to crucify Jesus. This sin of greed and jealousy and anger that was exhibited through them to arrest Jesus, to then crucify Jesus. And it was their very greed and bitterness and jealousy that motivated them to do that, that then allowed Jesus to be lifted upon the cross to do what? To forgive greed, jealousy, bitterness, rage, anger, malice. The irony of it, that the very thing that drove them to do this resulted in the forgiveness of those very things. God is so good, so wise, that he even used sin itself to do what to sin? To take it away. You see that? He used sin as as exhibited in these Pharisees. He used sin to ultimately take away sin. I marvel at the wisdom of God himself. I don't think, I know I didn't put it up on the screen, but I'll leave you with these last two verses. This is Jesus back in John 10 was talking about the good shepherd. Start at verse 17 and 18. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life so that I can take it again. Again, who's in control? Who's laying his life down? Who's taking it back up? Jesus says, I am. Verse 18, no one has taken my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. So who's initiative? Who started this whole thing? Who planned this whole thing? Who designed this whole thing? Let's don't think for a second it's the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin and Pilate and, and Rome. For Pete's sake, God himself is the one who created trees that Jesus would one day hang on. Who initiated this? It wasn't man. It was God himself who initiated the laying down of his life and also the taking it back up again. I have authority, not you, Pilate. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. How does Jesus have that authority? This command I receive from the Father. So let us in this terrible, terrible tragic reality of the death of God on a Roman cross, which we'll get into in more specifics in the weeks to come, but this arrest, the the unfair trials, the illegal trials, the violation of the pharisaical laws that the Pharisees are violating in order to just silence Jesus. Let's realize who's really in control. I mean, when God is able to use sin itself, jealousy, anger, uh, bitterness, Uh, greed, when he's able to use sin itself to be the mechanism, the tool, the pawn in his plan to actually put an end to the counting of sin, I think we have to step back and say, wow, say, God, you're good. So here's our journey marker when we look at these trials.
I know it's long. If God was in complete and total control the day he died, and I'm suggesting he was, he initiated it. He had the authority. If God was in complete and total control the day he died, then how complete and how total is his control today, now that he lives forevermore? And I don't know the specific thing that you're going through today in your family, in your marriage, in your career, in your parenting, in your whatever it is for you. I don't know what you're going through, but he does know what you're going through. And if he exhibited this level of complete and absolute control the day he died, just imagine with me the absolute authority, the absolute control, the absolute concern, the absolute delight he has in you the day now, today, that he lives forevermore. So the question really is, can you trust this guy? Can you trust this man, this Jesus, today? I think he's proven it over and over. Now, you might not be able to see what's in front of you. I, I, I can't. I can't prophesy who hit me, right? I can't see what I can't see. I don't, can't see what tomorrow's going to hold. I don't know what the future is for this or for that. But what I can know is if he was in complete and total control the day he died and all of that, would he look like a mere martyr, a victim? He wasn't. He was the one who initiated it. He was the one who orchestrated it. He was the one who exposed Judas so that it would happen the exact way he wanted it to happen. So that around noon, he was convicted around, we'll get to it next week, 3 p.m. or so, he's hanging on the cross, dying, declaring, it is finished. And we'll go back to Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel prophesies that the day will come when there will be an end to sin, an end to trespasses. The counting of sins will be no more when the Messiah himself is cut off. And that happened at this moment in history. And who's in control of it all? Who's in charge of it all? So whatever you're going, maybe it's financial, maybe it's relational, maybe it's health. All I'm saying is if he was in that much control then, the day he died when we think of like the worst day ever, and he's in complete total control, just imagine how much control and authority and love he has for you now that he lives forevermore. Can you trust him? I think the evidence is strong that you can. Before we uh, break up and head out, any thoughts or questions or comments or but what abouts or maybe should us? Yeah. No. Well, that's what this is for. That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's a great question. But John, I don't think, would include himself in the mob, you know? So when he says that the Jews didn't go further because they were concerned with, uh, you know, the, being clean for the Passover's day preparation, I don't think John was really worried about that. Um, so. A simple explanation would be John could care less about that at this point in time because the one he believes is the Messiah who loves him is in there. And so he wants to go in there to see what's going on. Um, that's a simple explanation. Uh, he might have got it secondhand from other people afterwards of what happened. You know, maybe more complicated. That might open up more. Well, so it's hearsay versus eyewitness, you know. But um, I think it's simple the simplest way to see it, I think, is he, he could care less uh, about being pure for some... Because it's that day when he's sitting at the... I mean, we'll read it. It's, it's later. It's in a few hours. He's standing at the foot of the cross, and Jesus says, Behold your son. Behold your mother. You know, and he's not really worried about the day of preparation and that sort of stuff because the lamb of stinking God himself is hanging on a cross. Who cares about a lamb, you know, back in Jerusalem, right? So it's awesome to see that connection
of letting go of the rituals, letting go of what pointed to Christ because Christ has now come, sort of a thing. Very cool. That's my take on it. I, there's a, a deeper question, a question like that that I'm not sure of, that I've asked myself all week that I thought you were going to ask, and I don't know the answer to it, so I'm glad that that wasn't what you asked. Huh? No, because I can't remember right now, but there was one. But I, I, if it comes to me, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it. I'm not afraid to. It was, but it was like that. Oh, it was, so if Jesus went into the praetorium, and he did, against maybe his will, but it's not against his will because he initiated it, was he unclean? Was he himself unclean until sundown? So that, that's the question I sort of pondered all week long, like, is he unclean because he's in the praetorium? And here's the only thought that I have on it, and I'm not saying it's a good thought, is, um, hello, in a few hours, three, he who knew no sin became sin. He's going to be very unclean in a few hours. So I'm pretty sure walking in, getting some dust from a Gentile's house on his sole of his feet is not a big deal right here. He is going to become the sin of the world. He doesn't just wear the sin of the world. He actually, 2 Corinthians 5, becomes the very essence of sin itself. So I'm not sure he's worried about being unclean until sundown when he's about to experience the full fullness of sin in him. But that's what I was thinking sort of all week, like, well, Jesus unclean, you know, since he went in there. Any other thoughts? Great, great question. Yeah. What far is trusting God does not mean everything's going to work out in this world as we think it should? Yeah. It's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Figure out where, you know, okay, I should find peace in spite of the earthly conditions. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. If we if we equate earthly blessings with God's, you know, love or something like that, then uh, we're going to struggle. We're going to struggle because uh, James, the the disciple in Acts twelve, his head was permanently severed from his shoulders. Um, Peter, according to tradition, was crucified uh, upside down. Um, all the disciples that I know of were, were killed. Paul himself was in house arrest in Rome for years until he ultimately, we assume, was, was uh, killed you know, for this message. And so if we equate earthly success to God's favor, then we are um, sadly, we're just going to be miserable. We're, we're gonna, we're, we will not discover faith. We will not discover joy we will, because it's contingent upon circumstances. And that's that is a, that's a mark of maturity, though, I think, as we sever that, as we sever, my life is going great here and now, so therefore God must be happy with me, he's not cursing me, you know, sort of a deal. When we sever that and realize that I stand complete in him, period, all right, now what's happening in life? Um, that's maturity. Uh, no one had a bigger claim to woe is me than Paul Read Second Corinthians, what is it, 12, where he talks about being shipwrecked, being bitten by snakes, being tossed, you know, from ships, being let down by, by in baskets, through walls, you know, like all this sort of stuff. Nobody was more, you know, persecuted than him. Well, I say nobody. I mean, there's a lot of other people. But, but it's because he was mature, seeing that it wasn't the here and now that creates that. But that's hard. I mean, we're all there. It's a great word. Anything else? He's faithful. He's good. If he's in control on this day, he's in control on any other day. That's for sure. Well, let's stand up and uh, be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you guys want to chit-chat around for a while, please do so. Um, And uh, look forward to seeing what happens. Well, I think we know what happens from here, but, you know, walking through it together. Father, we thank you uh, for being in control. And and that, as Mary Rose so beautifully pointed out, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have 
what we think is going to happen happens. This world is, uh, is, is, is cursed. This world is, is death and sin reign in this world. But the glorious gospel isn't that you have come to make this world better. The glorious gospel is that you have come to rescue us from this domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of the beloved son. So you're not here to make this place better. You're here to rescue us from this place that's destined, it's judged, it's damned, to rescue us to a new place, the kingdom of heaven itself. And by faith in you, we are there. By faith, we've been born of your kingdom, in your kingdom, citizens, as Paul says, of heaven itself. Jerusalem above is our mother. That's where we're from now. And so, Father, help us to see where we're from, and we're simply ambassadors here. Ambassadors aren't always treated well. I think of our our own ambassador in Libya. Our ambassadors are not always treated well in the country in which they go to. And we remain citizens, sons, and daughters of yours. So, Father, we thank you so much. Let your life within us be on display today tomorrow as we lean and depend as we sing about we depend upon you for you are trustworthy you initiated this whole thing no authority pilot gave wasn't given to a pilot that didn't come to him by you yourself thank you so much we love you in jesus name amen love you guys have a great week Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.